You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part four of a series in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt round his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We'll pause our reading after verse 12 of Matthew chapter 3. Now, as we read Matthew's account here, John the Baptist simply appears on the scene. In Mark's account, it's even more abrupt. Um, it, It just, John appears. John came, Matthew 3 verse 1 says, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Of course, Luke's gospel gives us the backstory to that. We read in Luke chapter one about John's father, Zachariah, who was a priest in the temple uh, and who was met by an angel uh, and who uh, was then struck silent until his son was born, but who praised God and and prophesied about uh, the role his son would play. You can read that in Luke's Gospel. And of course, uh, John's mother, Elizabeth, is also mentioned there. Mary goes to stay with her for a period of time. And when she, when Mary arrives uh, pregnant with the Lord Jesus, John the Baptist in the womb leaps uh, or rather kicks because uh, of joy at the arrival of Jesus. So John uh, is very closely associated with Jesus. There's a family connection. Mary and Elizabeth probably are are relatives um, and uh, John therefore and Jesus are relatives, cousins of a form. But John, known to us as John the Baptist, is a dramatic figure. Uh, so much so, in fact, I'm, I'm so intrigued with the person of John and with the things that he says, particularly about the Lord Jesus, that I wrote a little book called Clarion Call that you can purchase on Amazon, uh, which explores the significance of those sayings of John the Baptist. But as we read about him here in in, in Matthew 3, of course, we're moving from the birth narratives about Jesus and the settling in Nazareth at the end of chapter 2. We've seen already that in chapter 2, Matthew uh, uses the Old Testament in various different ways to support uh, this 
claim that Jesus is both the continuation of the Old Testament uh, and the fulfilment of its hopes and prophecies. And as we come into chapter three, we see again a prophecy from the book of Isaiah that is uh, related to John the Baptist. Isaiah chapter um, 40 verse 3 talks about the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Now, of course, uh, again, as always with Old Testament prophecy, that had a relevance in the time of Isaiah, bringing hope to the people in um, exile that they would be able to return or he were going into exile, that they would be able to return to God's land. Uh, but the greater fulfillment of that is in the person of John, the one who is the preparer of the way for the Messiah. He's preaching in the wilderness and John uh, is has intrigued historians and biblical scholars. They've tried to figure out what his relationship is with the various groups that existed amongst uh, Jews at the time when he was preaching. Uh, you, he mentions, of course, sorry, the, the passage that we just read mentions two of those groups, Pharisees and Sadducees. And it's very clear that John's view of the Pharisees and Sadducees, or at least of the ones who came to him, was not positive. I think we can say that. He calls them a brood of vipers, verse 7. Um, and we'll come to that in, in a moment. But just in terms of who those groups are, uh, because they're quite significant in the Gospels, the Pharisees were uh, people who were set apart for the law. They were a, a movement, a group of people, not so much a political group, but a, a group that was dedicated to the purity of the law, to making sure that their lives were faithful to the law in every respect. In a sense, they're quite like the Orthodox Jews of, of today, uh, although with some important differences, because of course, the temple no longer exists, the sacrifices and so on. So Orthodox Jews today keep the law without those sacrificial elements, whereas the Pharisees were living in, in uh, Judea uh, and around Jerusalem and had the temple. So they were able to keep the Old Testament law more fully. And so they recognised the whole of the Old Testament, the actions of God in history uh, and so on. And, uh, and they sought to influence people in that direction. They uh, were very serious about their faith. But sadly, at the time of Jesus, both through the words of John and later the words of, of Jesus himself, there was a, a kind of self-righteousness amongst the Pharisees and in particular a confidence that God's favour was on them as descendants of Abraham. So whenever John says, don't presume to say we have Abraham as our father, that's something that Jesus also said uh, in very similar words in John John's gospel. Um, you can read about that. I think it's chapter four um, and uh, or not chapter four, rather John chapter eight. Um, and uh, uh, they, they had this pride in their identity as Jews, as descendants of Abraham, as people who were faithful to the law. Uh, set apart to it and therefore they tended to stand on judgment both on Gentiles, in judgment on Gentiles, although some Pharisees seem to have gone on mission to the Gentiles to try and share the law of God, um, but perhaps for many had a, had a self-righteous attitude to that. They felt they were right with God because they observed the law. 
but they also stood in judgment on many of the people within Israel, uh, those who were tax collectors working with the Romans and uh, those whose, whose lives were marked by sin, tax collectors and, and sinners. Uh, they get referred to. So they had categories of people and they were the good guys. So not all Pharisees would have been bad or self-righteous, but there was certainly a strong element of that. The Sadducees uh, are a different group. They uh, were more politically involved, perhaps. They certainly held more of the power amongst the Jews. The high priests were from the, the, Pharise or the Sadducees um, at the time of Jesus. Uh, and so they worked more closely with the Romans than the Pharisees, were less separated in a sense. And they also had a different view of the Old Testament. Unlike the Pharisees who regarded the law and the prophets as the word of God, the Sadducees only recognised the first five books, the books of Moses, as being scripture. Uh, the other books of the Old Testament for them were, were simply uh, writings of God's people, but not given by God. And that led them to some um, differences of, of theology, of belief from the Pharisees. So the Sadducees didn't believe in angels because uh, angels aren't a strong feature in uh, those first five books of the Bible. And they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, whereas the Pharisees did, uh, because lots of the references that point towards a physical resurrection come in the Psalms and in the book of Job and in the prophets like uh, Ezekiel. So for the, the Sadducees, they're looking at the first five books and they don't see strong evidence of the resurrection of the dead there. So in many ways, the Pharisees are, 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 are more correct in their theology. They accept the whole of the Old Testament. Jesus, as we get into Matthew 5 and further on into Matthew, we'll see his beliefs are very much in line with the Pharisees. Yeah, he's upholding the whole of the Old Testament. He believed in the resurrection. Uh, he believed in angels. Um, but uh, his problem with the Pharisees was their hypocrisy and self-righteousness. The Sadducees uh, had a different set of problems. Uh, and so these two groups didn't really get on with each other, although they were both, uh, both had members within the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jewish people. And when it comes to the death of Jesus, they allied together with another group, the Herodians, the supporters of Herod and his family, uh, who were more secular uh, and, and more closely linked with um, power and, and with the Romans. Uh, so those groups all worked together uh, to get rid of Jesus. But um, the group that John is often associated with, partly because he's critical of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and partly because he lives in the desert and has a kind of um, ascetic lifestyle, he dresses in a way that sets him apart and so on, is a group called the Essenes. Uh, and they were uh, at least groups of people who lived in, in almost monastic type communities in the desert, uh, who were dedicated to uh, copying the scriptures, but also were, were very uh, believed that the coming of the Messiah and the end of the age was very close. And they tended to have individual teachers who were their leaders. Uh, but John is not exactly like the Essenes. He doesn't live in a community. Uh, he's much more engaged in preaching. He does seem to look towards the end, but his way of describing that is different than uh, the Essenes. So he might have similarities to them, but it's too simple to say that he was one of them. 
the Essenes perhaps are best known to us because of their community in Qumran uh, and their association with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which uh, were found in the mid uh, 20th century, but date uh, way back and, and give us some, some really helpful manuscripts of the Bible. Anyway, John, uh, who is John? What is his role in God's purpose? Well, certainly he's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament, John also has similarities to another character. Verse four talks about him wearing a garment of camel's hair. And the only person who's really described in a similar way in the Old Testament is the prophet Elijah. And of course, uh, in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we read that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord, uh, Malachi chapter 3, uh, and the Lord Jesus and people were associating uh, John the Baptist with that prophecy of Elijah. So in some ways, he's a he's a, a new Elijah, not Elijah reborn, but a new Elijah uh, coming in very much the same vein as Elijah. And just as Elijah was a bold preacher who called for repentance, so is John. He uh, has an unusual diet as well, living in the wilderness. And he's quite a sensation. He was a dynamic character, a dynamic preacher. And what was his message? Well, it was about warning of coming judgment and calling for the repentance from sins. And it's very clear in verse six that when people were baptized by him, immersed in water, which was a, a common way many of the Pharisees would have had in their own homes, pools for uh, ritual washing. And in fact, there were public pools which come up in the Gospels in some of Jesus' miracles where people went to be cleansed. Those in some cases became sites associated with healing as well. So this idea of cleansing by water, of washing with water, is very much there in Judaism at the time of John. It, it seems to have been extrapolated from the Old Testament requirement that the priests washed themselves, had a ritual washing before they served in the temple. And by extension, that came to apply not only to the priests, but to all people. Um, uh, and the idea of cleansing is very much part of that. So what John is doing in some senses isn't new, but what, what is new is, is the way that he is standing in judgment over people who would have been seen by many of the the uh, Jewish people as the religious guys, the good guys, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who included the priests. So he, he, he has a very clear word of judgment on them. They're a brood of vipers who warned them to flee from the wrath to come. Uh, and what John is calling for in verse eight is fruit in keeping with repentance. So what John's issue, and we see this in the teaching of Jesus as well, his core issue is with hypocrisy. People who pass judgment on others, who claim to be righteous, who do their acts of piety, as Jesus will say uh, in chapter six, in public for all to see. And yet their lives don't show the reality of godliness, the compassion for others, the pursuit of justice for others, the good deeds that flow from a genuine devotion to God. Uh, Jesus had no time for hypocrisy. The Old Testament prophets are very much the same. When they talk about God's judgment on the nation, taking them into exile, there are really three core reasons for that. Idolatry is one of those, uh, that they were worshipping false gods. 
but also social injustice that the the rich were getting richer and leaving the poor to be poorer and not enacting the call of God's law for justice and then thirdly religious hypocrisy people were bringing sacrifices not everyone was sacrificing to false gods some were sacrificing to the true God but their hearts were not right with him so Micah for for example can say what is it that God desires of a man that he would uh, walk humbly and do uh, with his God and, and do what is just and what is right. Uh, not hypocrisy, but sincerity from the heart. That's the issue that John sees with the Pharisees in his day. Uh, they may not have been idolaters, but they were not uh, truly devoted to God and with the Sadducees. Um, and so he says that the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is going to be cut down. Jesus will pick up that image of trees bearing good fruit in his Sermon on the Mount. When we get to chapter 7, we'll see that. So there is judgment coming. That is one thing. Hypocrisy will be exposed. Uh, lives that do not bear good fruit that flows from repentance will be uh, judged and cut down. Um, uh, and that's picked up again with a, a farming image in verse 12, the winnowing fork, and the threshing floor, wheat or other crops when they are threshed. That means beating them to get the grain to come out and separate it from the stalks that become straw. And then winnowing is once you've done that and separated out the grain, the chaff is still in there, bits of the husk, they need to be separated. And you do that by throwing the grain up in the air in a windy day, the wind blows away the, the chaff and the, um, the, uh, the grain, which is heavier, falls back down. And this is an image of, of, of judgment. The one who is coming is going to winnow and thresh and and the chaff will be burnt. No, it will be burnt with unquenchable fire. There is a, a permanency of this judgment. Notice that John is a, a kind of looking to the end times when final judgment comes. Now that mention of fire, of course, relates to what John says in verse 11, that he will baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism of the one who will come of course, we know that's the Lord Jesus, and we'll see that in just a moment when we finish reading Matthew 3. That judgment uh, is, is coming with Jesus, the one who is coming, who is mightier than John. John is very clear about this. This is why I love John's sayings. It's why I wrote the book Clarion Call, uh, to explore that and to see Jesus through the eyes of John. The mightier one, the greater one, the one who John says elsewhere uh, must become greater while John becomes less. So John, dynamic preacher as he is, uh, sensation as he is, popular as he is, is, is committed to giving way to Jesus. He doesn't want to retain glory, position and popularity for himself, but to direct it towards the one who is mightier than him, the one he's come to prepare the way of, the one he's not worthy to carry the sandals of. It's a beautiful picture. The, the sandal carrying servant is the lowest of the servants. You, you're probably familiar with Jesus washing the disciples' feet in John 13. Uh, and that was a task that was given to the lowliest servant. It was a filthy task. Sandals and feet got very dirty. And the servant who carries the sandals 
is is either the one who does the foot washing or perhaps even a lower servant who doesn't even get to do that, who just gets to pick up the dirty sandals, uh, cleaning shoes that are, uh, you know, have stood in something that is uh, unpleasant. That's, that's never a, a nice task. And John's saying that's how low he is by comparison with Jesus. But what Jesus is going to do is to baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the fire, as I said, in verse 12, seems to be connected with, with judgment. And, and, and some folks say, well, look, when the Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, there are tongues of fire. And so maybe the baptism of the fire is the baptism of the Spirit. And that may be true. Although it seems that John only describes that in verse 12 in terms of judgment. What we know is that the baptism of the Spirit, when it comes in Acts 2, is uh, not just about judgment. It's about uh, transformation of people, em empowerment uh, and, and growth of Christ-like character, God's work in changing them, transforming them. And so that is... Uh, 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 that doesn't seem to be here in what John says. And that might simply mean that John saw, as every prophet does, what God revealed to him, some of what was to come, but not everything. It may be simply that um, John, John could see the judgment that will come at the end of the time, but not the transformation that will come. That's possible. Uh, but but it's also possible that there's a difference between these two baptisms. It's kind of either you will be baptised with fire in the final judgment or you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. And maybe John didn't see that, but I think we can see that with the benefit of looking back after Acts 2. That we know that, that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, comes not just as the agent of God's judgment, but as the agent of salvation, the one who brings new birth, which John will, or Jesus will talk about. Jesus talks about in John chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus. So the baptism in the Spirit is a new thing. John can baptise with water. That's familiar. Any human being can get water and, and, and immerse somebody in it, which is what John did. Baptism, even the Greek word that's translated baptism, means to immerse. The whole body cleansed, symbolic of repentance and sins being washed away. But we don't simply need our sins washed away, and water can't wash the heart of sin. Baptism with water at its best can only be a symbol of something deeper, the need for a transformed and cleansed heart. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the, the new heart that the Old Testament prophets spoke about, the new covenant in which every person will have God's law written on their hearts. This is what the Spirit comes to do. But who could baptise with the Holy Spirit? After all, the Holy Spirit is God himself. No human being has the authority to use, manipulate the Spirit of God. Only God himself could baptise in the Spirit. So this is a strong pointer to the fact that Jesus himself is God. Let's read on then uh, the rest of, of Matthew 3 from verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptised by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he consented, 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, um, here is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus coming from Nazareth now, having grown up probably around the age of 30, um, and, and he's coming into public view. He comes to John. It's important for Jesus that this happens, that he is baptised, that John affirms and recognises him. John, who is the forerunner. Now, I've mentioned before that Matthew follows the pattern of the story of the Old Testament. Rather, the, the life of Jesus does that. We've seen uh, before this that Jesus is, is uh, rescued out of Egypt by Joseph, who gets dreams from God, just as the people of God in Genesis were res rescued from Egypt by uh, Joseph, who got dreams from God. So we have uh, the coming out of Egypt and now we have passing through water. That happened to the Israelites as, they, as God brought them out of Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea. And as we move on, we'll see that what comes next is temptation in the desert. That happened to Israel too. So Jesus is the true Israel. And that may be what Jesus means when he says they have to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus has to fulfill the pattern of the people of Israel. It is right for us to do this. You might simply translate that. Of course, it may be that Jesus needs to do this so that he can identify with John uh, and can uh, John can see what, what he sees, this revelation of the Spirit of God and the voice and hear the voice of the Father. Or it may be that Jesus does this to set a pattern to say that those who follow after Jesus must be baptised. It's very clear, of course, that the reason Jesus not the one reason that it isn't the reason why Jesus does this is because he needed to repent of sin. John knows that. He says, you're the one who should baptise me. And Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 I'm a sinner and I need to repent. No, no, he does this because it is fulfilling the pattern that God has set, doing what God intends for him, showing what a holy, righteous life looks like and identifying with John. And so, uh, all righteousness has to be fulfilled. Later on, Jesus will say, uh, we'll talk about the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Matthew 5 and righteousness together. And, and that may have a connection with this, that this is part of that fulfillment of the Old Testament pattern. But um, when Jesus is baptised, immediately it says when he comes up from the water again and baptism by immersion uh, coming up again it says the the heavens were opened to him uh, and you may notice there's a, a footnote that some manuscripts don't say to him in fact the niv doesn't include those words um, but it is it does seem to be clear that it's 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 jesus who sees the spirit of god descending but we know um, from John's Gospel, chapter 1, uh, verse 32, um, that uh, John uh, saw this as well. Uh, because when John testifies about it, he says that he uh, that, that the Father had told him that the one that he saw the Spirit descend on and remain is the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus sees it, John sees it, but the crowd doesn't see it. This is given for the benefit of 
John and perhaps the benefit of Jesus and for our benefit because it's recorded here in the scriptures. So what do we have? Well, we have the Spirit of God coming to rest on Jesus, or as we saw in Luke, remain on him. This is a permanent anointing with the Spirit of God. From this point on, Jesus' ministry will be in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not to say he had no relationship with the Spirit before this. It would be wrong, as some Christians have have wrongly thought, to say that this is the point where Jesus becomes the Son of God or uh, the Godhead is connected with the, the man, Jesus, that before this he was just a man. That's simply not true. He was the Son of God already. Uh, before this, he was God incarnate from the time of his conception. But um, this is a declaration of the truth and a, perhaps a new relationship with the Spirit, anointing him as a man for the service that he's going to do. That's what the, the Spirit of God did in the Old Testament, anointed kings and individuals. So in a sense, this may be the, the recognition of Jesus, certainly by John, and then as John testifies to it by others. Of course, the other great significance of this is that we have three persons. We have Jesus, uh, we have the Spirit, like a dove. That, of course, has Old Testament resonances with the uh, the ark and the dove that was sent out that brought the olive branch, uh, the sign that has become a sign of peace. It also has uh, a, a symbolism of, of, of that idea of peace and um, uh, the, the presence of the Spirit. And, and then the Father, doesn't say the Father, but he calls Jesus his beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. So this is why Christians believe in what we call the Trinity. The, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the New Testament, but the testimony that comes with the life of Jesus, which isn't clear, of course, in the Old Testament, there are hints of it, but becomes clear with Jesus that there are three persons in one, Father, Son and Spirit. They're working together in harmony and they have love for one another. That's a beautiful thing. The, the Father loves the Son. The Spirit anoints the Son. They are united together in a, an eternal relationship of love. Salvation, which will unfold through Jesus, is an invitation into loving relationship with the God who is love and who is light, truth and love together. And here is this beautiful sign of it, which confirms to John the identity of Jesus, which confirms to us the reality of the Trinity, and which tells us that when the Father says, with whom I am well pleased, that's the concrete answer. If anybody still wondered, did Jesus need to be baptised because somehow he had sinned before this point? Did he only become sinless from this point? No. God has been pleased with him eternally and has been pleased with him throughout his life on this earth. And here he is now standing, stepping forward to take on the mantle of his public ministry, to go and to speak, to teach, to perform miracles and ultimately to die as the sacrifice for our sins. I hope You've got a glimpse of Jesus through John as you've listened to this. I encourage you, as I've said before, have a look at my book, Clarion Call, if you want to read more about John the Baptist and to see Jesus through his eyes. God bless you.